0: I truly echo what Pastor Emilio said. It is a joy and an immense privilege to open God's word with you. To look at his riches found in Christ. Mm. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. The word of God says to us, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope that laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be looking at today what I've called the the foundation of heavenly hope. And we're going to begin today, Lord willing, a journey through this incredibly rich letter, and probably one of the most thoroughly Christ centered written letters by the Apostle Paul. And its essential focus is on the divine and the exalted person of the preeminent Christ that declares to all readers who alone holds the central place in Christian orthodoxy. I think it's a very timely word in, in what's coming in the, in the next, in the July. And bearing in mind the theme of this letter, we begin closely examining the riches found in Paul's introduction here in these first eight verses, this this prayerful introduction, which, if we're not careful, we may just simply read through it, gloss over it, and not really see what the foundational purposes and the pertinence of these words are to us not only to the faithful brethren in Colossae, but for today's day and age. Because remember, Paul, as an apostle, a called messenger of the living God, was not simply sitting down to write an encouraging letter that we might do to a friend or family member. He was empowered by the purpose and the will of the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who called him to this life of of love-bound duty, to not only preach the gospel, to preach Christ crucified and resurrected, but he was also called to admonish and encourage believers to strive to keep themselves in the love of God, to remain centered in this glorious gospel, to keep Christ exalted and supreme in their hearts, their lives, and their future hope-filled expectation as those who have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. And now the, the recipients of this letter, the Colossians, these these saints, these holy ones and faithful brethren, were located spiritually in Christ and geographically in this in this region of the Lycus Valley, which is now Eastern Turkey. And they had in their midst, based on the report from Epaphras to fall, to Paul, that This this syncretism, this amalgamation of teachings from some local Jewish folklore and pagan folklore beliefs were now infiltrating the church. And it appears from the descriptions that we'll see in later parts of this letter that this prominent super spiritual-like figure or spiritualist had attracted a following in the Colossian church where he presented himself as, as something of some higher spiritual guide. And he attempted to provide some new level of spirituality through various means and commands that we'll also look at. But at the heart of this was a grievous offense to the supremacy and sovereignty of Christ. Their pursuit of and adherence to these personal visions that this man had, these specific rules that were corrupting the faith and love and hope of all these saints, were all the means which set out to destroy the body. And it may sound to us like this was some plan of of a wealthy, elitist power group within the city wanting to try to influence the church in a certain way, but it's very unlikely because Colossae had lost its prominence on the eastern trade routes. It was both in a social and an economic decline. And at the time of this letter, both Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea were victim of several serious earthquakes. And Colossae had become rather an insignificant city. Suffering and, and striving to find through its its culture and various religious influence some sense of reality and purpose and future. And I, I read an excerpt from Walter Wilson's book on, on called The Hope of Glory. And he says, he gives some insights into this cultural mindset and what was going on in the city and likely in the book in the Church of Colossae. He says it seemed that the universe in all its vastness and intricacy was beyond human comprehension or control. Being governed instead by a host of wrathful gods and indifferent supernatural powers. Human beings could do little more than struggle against the relentless tide of fate. For them personal and material insecurity, not to mention moral and spiritual indeterminacy, characterize the human condition, which often amounts to little more than a fruitless search for meaning that ends with death and oblivion. This is why the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write this letter to the saints in Colossae. And for us in this time, we need to be established upon these simple truths that he's going to bring out as a reminder and remembrance Preparing us to look at and understand and enjoy the supremacy of Christ in all things. And we could look around today, just as Pastor Emilio was telling us about the influence of Islam on what's happening in our culture. We too have a plethora of religious influences, perversions all around us. Postmodern Christianity, paganism, Buddhism, Islam, anything but the church that God intended, and anything to give what appears to be hope, but in reality is only going to temporarily fulfill a quest or some pursuit, only to stir up the, the need for yet another quest. But Colossians 1.18 tells us it is only the resurrected Christ who is the head of the true church, his bride. We also see in our time that Man is pursuing this utopian nirvana that he believes he can accomplish or or establish through his knowledge, his science, his technology. We're now even attempting to evolve our existence and extend our life indefinitely through some thermal preservation. We're hybridizing, we're integrating ourselves with machines and robots pursuing this this digitally-based artificial intelligence system to ultimately replace the calling that man has received by God to work, and also in an effort to provide all manner of entertainment and central pursuits that whatever you desire, and whatever is your whim, you have this capability. I know technology can be used for the kingdom of God and the advancement of his gospel, but when... Man is is ultimately casting off his restraint and truth of who he is as a creature and created in the image of God, and yet attempting to be God and rule like God, try to be the master of his destiny and create some synthesis or synthetic hope. We need to remember that it is Christ alone who has spoken all things into existence He is sovereign over creation and the heavens and the earth. And we're also in an age of no absolutes, as we've discussed that already in the announcements. But Christ alone is the preeminent of all creation. Paul tells us that not only does Christ, Christ does all the fullness of the Godhead dwell in bodily form, but he is the absolute. He is also the firstborn in whom the fullness of our satisfaction is found. And I could continue on the rest of the afternoon listing all the endeavors of man. I won't. But what I want to bring home to us is in this seemingly simple introductory prayer to the Colossians and for the Colossians and for us. That the foundations that have been established cannot be wavered from. They cannot be compromised. This foundation that we have in and from Christ And Paul is laying a groundwork. I kind of pictured it. He's pouring a slab down for the rest of this letter to help us begin to understand and comprehend how are we to seek and savor the supremacy and the sufficiency in Christ. So in verses 3 and 4, we read again. It says, we, Paul and Timothy, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Paul begins with purposefully recognizing and identifying the person from whom their faith and love originate from, and that in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and his Father, God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and this isn't some casual observation or admiration of a natural, inherent trait in these saints, something they or that we might be born with or we just need to work up in ourselves. No, these are gifts granted by the Creator through salvation. We can look quickly at Galatians 5, 6. I know this is a familiar verse for the men who just finished this, this study in Galatians Paul says that for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Nothing that man can do of himself or even through the law could recommend him or make him suitable to God for salvation, but only through such a faith in Christ that reveals its truth through the love from God. And we also know a familiar verse, Ephesians 2.8, and Paul says that it's not of ourselves, but it is only truly by grace that we're brought to the reality of faith working in and through us, bearing fruit in love back to God and to brothers and sisters and to our enemies. Let's look at just one more aspect of this from Ezekiel's glorious prophecy, the mercy and covenant grace of God that was fulfilled in Christ. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 27, says to us, For I, take, I will take you from the nations, this is God speaking, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The grandeur of Christ's redeeming work and dignity in the dignity and the glory of his character are displayed through the titles that Paul gives to him in the thanksgiving that he offers. We are to believe in Christ, not as some abstract truth or some poetic conception, but as the divine human person, the anointed Savior. Faith in a believer is truly manifested. It, it changes the disposition and the conduct of the believer. And Epaphras rejoiced to bear the good tidings of the fact And the three glorified God the Father, giving thanks. But Paul's focal point or foundation for the entirety of this thanksgiving is found in verse 5. Paul uses this this glorious prepositional phrase that I hope will resonate deep in our souls and, and help transform our mindset in this life. It says, because of. Because of what? It is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Do you consider much of this hope laid up for you in heaven? Do you meditate on it, the glorious person of Christ? Is there a hope in you that actually bears fruit in your life? Do the promises given to us by the Father always contain something that we are to look forward to? Amen. Romans 12.12 tells us that we are to bear the fruit of joy and hope, to be rejoicing in hope, and because the gospel of Christ is bearing good news for us, because we do have something to look forward to. But is this future hope for us so precious, so real, real to us that we're willing to bear any amount of suffering in this life in order that we may one day fully realize its eternal weight and glory isn't this what paul exhorted the corinthians with in second corinthians 4 that we are not to lose heart that this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison to the sufferings in this life what about the fruit of love that hope brings? If our eternal heavenly hope is the foundation of our love and faith, and this is what Paul is saying here, then does our heavenly mindedness produce for us a genuine godly love? Or is it just a means of escapism? What Paul's declaring here may be seen by some that if a believer sets their minds, their thinking, their hearts' desires intently upon the reality of a future that will share glory with God, that will be a reality being freed from sickness, from sin, from our enemy, and living in glory and joy for all eternity, that somehow this believer has become useless in this life. That he or she is constrained in some negative way and that they might become too self centered. It is not a hoping in heavenly reality that hinders our love. Let me say that again. It is not a hoping in heavenly reality that hinders our love. It's when we hope in this world and its temporal satisfactions offered by the world in whatever form or type they are. That truly hinders our love. It fosters indifference and it fuels our pride. This is what binds us up. I believe that the church, and I speak of myself here, had a deeper passion for heaven and the glories of Christ. If we flourished upon the foundation of our eternal hope, where would our priorities be and how radically would they be transformed? How great a force would we be in this world? Rather than taking the kingdom of God by force and striving against our own selfish excuses to make time to be at the feet of Jesus in his word, to spend time interceding on behalf of the saints, even singing and worshiping God in song for the pleasures, the joys in this life, We stifle and constrain this love by giving God his time slot, if we even give him a time slot. And then we spend the rest of our time pursuing riches and pleasures and entertainment and leisurely things that even return to us constantly because we have to keep replenishing these things. Do we really long to be of those whose hearts are so passionately in love with Christ And his promised glories of heaven that we truly understand and experience the reality of being just a mere sojourner on this earth. Have we attempted to taste the eternal and lasting beauty of the age to come? Where the offerings of this fading world are like dollar store trinkets that we wouldn't even hang on our refrigerators. And do the appeals of this world's so-called entertainment take precedence over our meditations of the rich eternal glories that we can read and hear and even spiritually fantasize about in the book of Revelation? What a glorious thing to consider and ponder. being heavenly-minded, or even being more and more heavenly-minded, where Christ is seated in glory, where the person and the reality of our hope is, will free us from the bondage of television, from the bondage of worldly entertainment, from the bondage of food cravings, from our visual carnal pursuits, from our desires for comfort and ease, our accountability groups, our world's meaning of retirement, and allow this foundation of hope to bear its fruit in and through us to fulfill our call with joy, to prioritize our time in the enjoyment and the worship of God. And in this, we only find the freedom to maximize our labors of love to one another. This is the truth of Scripture. These are the key foundation truths that Paul is pouring out again for us in remembrance through his greeting and prayer. So I want to look closer. I want to dig deeper at four fundamental points of Paul's Thanksgiving prayer here. For what God alone has done for the saints in Colossae, for us. These are not new, but they're very necessary reminders about the faith. Just like Brother Landon said today in Sunday school, we do need to be reminded of these things. We need to be stirred up by way of reminder. And they're never changing. And without these fundamental truths, being a reality in the believer's life would be tantamount to a false conversion. So, our first key point is in verse 4 the love which you have for all the saints. It is a love that is toward another, it is outward, it is expressed, it is relational. These Colossians had a known reputation for loving one another and there was in their midst a public outworking of the brotherhood of Christ Paul had heard about it it was manifested it was publicized because of the hope and because of this hope involved others as well its source and life was from Christ and it reflected his glory this is what the lord tells us in Matthew 5:16 that our light should so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And I know he also says, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing when you're giving your your alms. But if we habitually love one another, word will get out, even though we may try to humbly conceal it. Second key point is in verse 5, and we mentioned it briefly before, because... Of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The love of the saints is a fruit of the hope laid up, reserved, kept in heaven for us. There's a significant causal connection here between the love of the saints and the hope they have in heaven, in Christ by faith. God's word testifies that hope causes or produces love. And the causal effect will testify in our lives if we stand on this foundation of hope. And I know you've heard this. That word hope in verse 5 is not our subjective experience of hoping for something. It's not wishful thinking that possibly something might work out for our benefit and just kind of hope everything just goes along that way. No, no. This is an objective reality on a solid foundation of what God himself has committed to do for us in the future through Christ and for all eternity. Remember what Paul says to the Corinthian church in chapter 15 when he's talking about the truth and the power of the resurrection of Christ. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. It is a hope that is not only foundational in the effectual call of God to salvation through Christ that we experience here and now, but it is a continuing hope with future fulfillment, a realization in the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 1.18 And this divinely fixed hope is an objective reality laid up. It is stored permanently for us in heaven. It is the glory of God. It is the joy of heaven. It is seeing Christ in his glory, full radiance, no longer needing faith but beholding him with our eyes. It is our freedom from our sin, our sickness, death, and Satan. And when we objectively set our hearts and minds upon this future experienced hope that is ours in heaven it will be like a flame set to kindling within us a subjective hope and joy and power and freedom that will express itself in love to one another so love is a fruit of hope a cause of hope and this brings us to the third point that connects verses four and five love is of course a fruit of the gospel the good news of jesus christ Verses 5 and 6, it continues, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even it is as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. The word of truth. The body of truth, in all of its doctrinal substance, the power of the gospel is intended to bear fruit, and it will do so wherever it is preached to the elect of God. Paul heard of the faith and love flourishing among the Colossian brethren, how it is the evidence of the power of hope, but clearly as the evidence of the gospel's power. Not only in Colossae, but throughout the world, through Rome, through Texas, through North Texas and Mexico and China, in Iran and Iraq, but wherever it is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, it bears fruit in the hope which results in love. And keep this in mind as as I know you do, as we share the gospel to whomever, because we see at the root of the gospel is promises to the lost, divine promises, promises of eternal life of reality, and promises that are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. If I can, let's consider it this way. Scripture tells us that for us to be saved, we must repent and believe. Repent from sin, believe in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel in its simplest truth. And it will not change because God's word does not change. Now, if we look at that in the light of Paul's context here and what he's saying to the Colossians, if we want to inherit the hope that is laid up for us in heaven, then we must stop putting our hope in the promises of the world and start putting our hope in the promises of God. What are the promises of the world? Promises that money will make, promises that wealth will make, promises that sexual immorality will make promises that children will make, promises that wives will make, promises that husbands will make. All of these things in the world that are promises that God does not make must be abandoned, for we are not called to for, are we not called to forsake all in order to have Christ. And when we stop hoping in the promises that the world makes and begin hoping in the promises that God makes is when we believe and are converted, we're born again. We're saved, and we understand and inherit the promises laid up for us in heaven. So the third key point for the Christian, the life of love is a fruit of the gospel of Christ, which is full of eternal promises, which begets a heavenly hope, which begets a love that grows for the saints and for the lost. Finally, the fourth key point is that love is a fruit of the Spirit, We see this in verses 7 and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For the Colossians or anyone else to have a genuine love for one another, not a worldly love that demands or expects, but one that loves regardless of self-preference, is to be subject to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We don't naturally love one another selflessly. Our fallen natures would rather manipulate one another to get what we want. It's only after we have been truly transformed by the Spirit of God, been made new, and been able to, by the replacing work of the Holy Spirit, to have our hearts transformed And while Paul rightly gives thanks and honor to God for all things, he's also very mindful to recognize the love that is the fruit of the working of the Spirit of God. He does so here when speaking of his fellow slave in Christ, Epaphras, who's both expressed and demonstrated his love for the Colossians by going all the way to Rome during Paul's imprisonment to seek out counsel and how to confront these false teachers showing his desire to guard and protect the sanctity of Christ's church. But he's also informed Paul of this fruitful work now being exposed or expressed and experienced by Paul. Spiritual, godly love is the direct work of the Spirit. It is a gift of God, and we are enabled because, according to 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And Paul says to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 5, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And according to Galatians 5.22, I know this is very familiar, it is the, the overriding fruit that is expressed in various manifestations in our character that has been transformed by the Spirit of God in and through our lives where we always thank God for these fruits that are born of the Spirit's work. Faith, love, and hope, they're all of God's working because he alone made it. So we have these four points that Paul is teaching us through this this introductory prayer about love and faith and hope. Love is a fruit of the practical and public outworking for the believer. Love is the fruit of hope laid up in heaven in the ultimate future where we recognize that heaven holds for the believer the great things won for us by Christ. Love is the fruit of the gospel where God's word is exercised through proclamation and power, originating from God and and replicated through the believer. Love is the the fruit of the Spirit in his initial regenerating work, and continuing throughout the believer's sanctification. Now, how do we go about applying these four points in such a way that is worked out in our daily lives? What does this look like in order to honor and glorify God here in our lives, in our church, in our community in North Texas? Let me ask it this way. Do we want to love like this? Have we heard enough about this that we want to be a lover of Christ, a lover of souls, to deny ourselves, to be spent on behalf of others? Brothers and sisters, it goes back to fundamentals, and it never departs from there. I had the privilege in high school to play basketball. In my ninth grade year, I was horrible, Couldn't shoot anything, couldn't dribble. Was worn out in the first quarter and had to quit. But I had a wise coach, and he took the time to show me the fundamentals. Dribbling, ball handling, shooting, wind sprints, weightlifting. And he told me, you practice these things throughout the summer. Next year, you'll be ready to play. And it worked. I committed myself to him. Not that I was some NBA star, but... They, they, the fruit was born from these fundamentals. And what I found interesting, it, it hit me today or yesterday as I was finishing this up. As long as every team member was working their fundamentals, we could truly function as a team. It wasn't one man carrying the whole show. And those fundamentals stayed with us sophomore year, junior year, senior year. They never went away, they only improved and enhanced. I know that's a very simple, practical application, but this is what God has given us. This is what we call his means of grace. Because our text tells us first that we, daily, we need to daily give heed to the gospel. We need to keep ourselves centered in the doctrinal, theological truths of the gospel. If I may steal a little thunder from brother, this is putting on Christ. This is the armor of God. These are the realities that we share in Christ that we are to be daily clothed in. To practically give our ears and our hearts to reading, to hearing, to preaching of the word, to both heed its warnings and to embrace and claim its promises. And in this, renewing our minds, transforming our hearts so that we'll be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This will of the Father was clearly expressed on the Mount of Transfiguration. What did the Father say of his beloved Son? Listen to him. Jesus himself said, search the Scriptures. Folks, the world around us is screaming for attention. Screaming and appealing to us to distract us, to consume us, to get our minds Onto anything but God, His Word, and His truth, His Son, and our heavenly reality. And when we give our attention to these distractions, the voice of Christ in His Word begins to fade. The interest and desire to be with Him begins to wane. Our love for one another begins to grow cold, and our hope will diminish into destructive pleasures. Second, we need to be as the Colossians were, to be in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Paul uses this prepositional phrase five times throughout this letter to be in Christ. So we must be walking and abiding in Christ by the means of the Spirit that he sent for the purpose to come alongside, to counsel, to comfort, to convict, to reveal Christ himself to us through the Word. And when we come to the word to hear his voice, we've got to forsake all self-reliance and truly, humbly seek and pray as David did, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things of your law. And Paul, his prayer for the Ephesian church, he said that God may enlighten the eyes of your hearts so that we will know what is the Hope, there it is, his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? That same power that's going to enable us to stand against the enemy. The gospel, as well as the ongoing understanding and application of gospel truth from scripture, must come to us through the word, but in conjunction with the power of the Holy Spirit, in full conviction, in certainty, and in its fullness. Third and finally, we must be like Jonathan Edwards. I'm learning to love that brother more and more. We need to resolve to ourselves that we will set our minds upon this hope in heaven. From verse 5 of chapter 1, we look quickly over to chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. I'll read them for you very quickly. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Not once, not even twice, but continuously, daily be seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And we're going to look into this more in the future, Lord willing. But we are to do this, set our minds upon Christ as we rely upon the Holy Spirit's work, and we consciously take our thoughts and our hopes off the world, off the wealth, the pursuit of wealth and power, whatever it may be, and consciously set them upon Christ, upon the hope and the assured promises of heaven, in the hope that we have of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. And this is a very real aspect of what Paul means in Philippians 2, where he says So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is not just a work for those who are older, something younger folks can put off till they get later in life, although I find this to be even more satisfying as I grow older, it is for believers of all ages not to wait till you'll think you're close to the end of your sojourn. It needs to be a daily reality now. These are the fundamentals. These are the means of grace that God has given us. And this resulting work in and through God's amazing grace within our hearts and what is manifested through our lives will be a testimony of patience and kindness. Less jealous, less prideful, more humble. We won't seek our own, but seek the good of others. We'll be less irritable, less prone to keep an account of wrongs or evil. We'll be seeking to keep love as our aim, and by the working of the Word and the Spirit's power, It'll not only transform ourselves, but our families, our church, and our community. And we'll see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. Merciful Father, we thank you for this time to look into your word and see and remind ourselves, O Lord, of these fundamental Graces, means of graces that you have given to us, that we might grow in maturity in Christ. To the knowledge of your will, to know more and more the hope of our eternal inheritance in Christ. Lord, help us. Father, we are weak. We are easily distracted. Help us, Father, to prioritize Christ each day. Lord, to resolve, to seek him, to seek his face, to learn from him, to sit at his feet, to pour out our hearts in praise, in supplication, in heartache, in joy, For he is able to bear our burdens and that we may take his yoke on, which is light and easy. For it is life, it is joy, it is hope. Father, we ask that you would purify and enlarge our faith, our belief in Christ and then upon the word that you've given us, because it speaks of him. Thank you for this time. We give you praise and thanks for all things. In Jesus' holy name, amen.